Well, good morning and welcome to Vertical Life Church. How are we? Awesome. I'm excited to be here today. Uh, I, first, I want to say I appreciate uh, my sister in Christ, Shirley Frank. She's the one that provided us the offering of donuts this morning as we were practicing. And I also appreciate Kevin. He's our detail guy, so he makes sure to take care of all the last-minute uh, situations. So that's what was going on down there. Of course, it is biblical. In the Old Testament, they did provide tithes of their, their first fruits, their fruit and their grain and stuff like that. So we'll say it counts this morning and, uh, and give her credit for that. But uh, uh, for those of you that are new with us today, I want to say my name is Joey. I'm the lead pastor here. I want to say welcome to you. And uh, we're excited that you chose to spend some time with us today. We have a challenge that we challenge all of our first time or second time guests. It's our Take 5 challenge. And basically, that's our triple dog dare to you. And so if you have not already, but if you would, before you leave, stop by our VIP table, fill out a connection card, and drop that off to them. They'll give you a swag bag full of all sorts of good stuff. And in there is the Take 5 Challenge card, and there's a punch card in there. And that basically is our triple dog dare to you that says if you stay uh, or come join with us for five weeks in a row, that we as a leadership team will take you out for a cup of coffee or a drink just to say thanks for spending time with us and to give you a chance to get to know us a little bit better and us to get to know you and how we can help you on your spiritual journey. Um, for those of you that are regular V-lifers in the house today, if you have your smartphone or your social media handy and want to check in, give us a shout out on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Kick or Snapchat or any of the thousands of social media platforms that are out there, uh, that's a great way to just begin conversations with those in your sphere of influence about what God is doing here and invite them to come be a part of what God is doing. Um, also, last week... Uh, we invited our church to begin praying through this month on who God would uh, raise up in our church to um, take a step forward in spiritual leadership. And so if uh, you have received one of those brochures, um, the elder brochures last week, continue to look through and pray through that as you are seeking God's guidance on who you would recommend um, for that uh, position, as well as if you didn't get one of those brochures, I believe we should have some at the VIP table. If not, um, just fill out a connection card, let them know that you didn't get one, and we'll get one to you, and we would appreciate that. Um, now, we're in Matthew chapter 12 and 13 today, so if you have your Bible with you, you can turn there, or if you have your digital copy, you can begin navigating that way. Um, but uh, today is a big day, right? There's something going on today, later tonight. Well, do you guys know what it is? What is it? Super Bowl. Super Bowl, right? Super Bowl. And so the fact that you are here and not using this as an excuse to skip means that you guys are getting the first class ticket to heaven and everyone else is going coach. So I'm just going to throw that out there. If it's not a thing, it is now. So, um, but when you, when you go to sporting events, you, you guys know the, those kind of the, I call them audience uh, participation uh, points that they do in the, in the, the, during the game. Whenever something's not really going on, they start getting the mascot out there to do different things. And sometimes at different sporting events, they have the, the cam. You know what I mean? Like the dance cam. So whenever it, it shines on you, all of a sudden in front of thousands of people, I guess you're supposed to drop it like it's hot to some jock jams, right? So you're just supposed to break down and humiliate yourself in front of everyone. And uh, they also have what they call the kiss cam. So uh, they, they try to find a couple in the audience, and they put the camera on them, and then you're just supposed to smooch in front of uh, thousands and thousands of people. And, and uh, if you're on Facebook at all, I'm sure you've seen some viral videos of these dance cam and kiss cam 
moments. And uh, there's one in particular that I just thought was hilarious, the, a kiss cam moment. There's this guy who's a young guy sitting next to a young girl, looks to be about the same age. And for all intents and purposes, you would think that they were together. They're both a young couple, and, and then all of a sudden, the kiss cam lands on them, and then something really funny happens. Go ahead, Dale, let's show them the, the clip. So here we go. They're in the audience, watching what's going on, and here comes the kiss cam. In three, two, one. Right, so that this guy had been preparing for something, right? He, he knew, probably, he was one of those guys that just has bad luck, that if anything bad could go wrong, it would probably happen to him. And so he was preparing for that. And though that's funny, I bet for him and for his sister, that was incredibly awkward. You know what I'm saying? It's just that moment where you're like, oh, no, this can't be happening. Um, so he'd had to prepare. And I think we've all had awkward moments like that a time or two, where we were associated with somebody awkwardly in some fashion. You know, maybe there's a time where you were with someone that you knew but didn't really want to claim. You know, maybe they're a friend or one of your family members. I think we all have the family member that has uh, just is overtly loud in every possible situation. They don't understand what their inside voice is. And so no matter where they are, whether it's at, at a restaurant or a public gathering, they're just loud and obnoxious and it kind of makes you feel a little awkward, or, or maybe they're that, that friend or family member that talks all the way through the movie, especially the movie that everyone's been waiting months and months and months to come out, and now it's opening night, and they won't shut up, and everyone's looking at you like they're wanting to end you right there in that moment. Like, I paid you know, good money for this, you know, to, to see this movie, and you guys won't be quiet. And so, you know, you look at your friend or family member, you're like, I'm not with this guy. I'm not, I'm not with them, or you feel like that. Or maybe you have a friend or a family member who's made some bad decisions. They've just, their own immaturity or their own um, just carelessness, they've made some negative decisions or bad decisions that have affected you, affected you in a negative way. And so now when they come around you in public, you want to pull out that I'm not with that guy card. I think this is just something that happens. It's a normal circumstance that we all go through in our lives. And if it hasn't happened to you yet, it probably will at some time. Now, as we close out our study in Matthew chapter 12, we're seeing Jesus finish up his talk about the two kingdoms that are at war, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Satan and, and what's going on in that war. And while he's finishing up his talk, there's a group of people that comes close to the gathering that desires to speak with Jesus. And they're waiting outside for, for him to get finished so that he can, they can talk with him. And we see Jesus in this moment pull out a really harsh, I'm not with that guy card. In Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 46, it says this. It says, as Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they want to speak to you. And Jesus asked, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he pointed to his disciples and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. So who does Jesus say, I'm not with that guy about? His own family. 
Right here he has his mom, the Virgin Mary, the, the one that everyone says, Mother Mary, full of grace. People pray to this girl across the world. She's this highly exalted, highly respected woman. And here Jesus says, I don't know her. I don't know my brothers, his own family, his flesh and blood. It, it, right here, just as you're reading the text, it, it's perceived or, or seems that Jesus is publicly disowning his family right in front of everyone and claims that the men that were following him, his disciples, were his true family. And so that it's, it's one of those, you know, just catch you off guard situations. But if you think about it, his family hadn't been following him, right? They, they just showed up to, to have a conversation. They weren't following him. They were focused on living their own life, doing their own thing. Mary was still a mother and tending to her other children, a wife, and their, their sons, his brothers, probably were working towards a trade or learning what they were wanting to do with their lives. They were taking care of their daily responsibilities. But the disciples had given up everything, their daily responsibilities. Literally, they walked off the job to follow Jesus. They left their nets in their boats as they were fishermen. And they did that to focus on a greater purpose, to focus on following what the will of God was for their lives, which was to follow Jesus as a disciple. You see, Jesus' family knew who Jesus was, but they weren't following him. His disciples knew who he was, but were following him. And for a society in this, this time in our history, this society elevated the family. They had a patriarchal system. Literally, your identity was tied to who was in your family. And here Jesus makes this shocking statement, one that would have probably devastated or really shocked his family to hear. And even though Jesus was a man, sometimes we forget that at the same time, he was God wrapped in the flesh. He wasn't just a human being. He was God literally come to earth. Jesus doesn't have just a finite point of view like we do. He doesn't get caught up in the social norms and expectations that we wrestle with day in and day out because he sees things from a different perspective, from a heavenly perspective. And though here in this moment, he, it's perceived that he's verbally disowning his family, he makes a very clear statement that his earthly family really isn't his family, but his heavenly family is his real family. But this isn't the first time Jesus makes this distinction. If you remember back when we don't know much about Christ's life as he's growing up in, in his uh, childhood, but we know around the age of 12, they were uh, in Jerusalem. His family was in Jerusalem observing uh, the Passover. And after the festival, the family took off and, and started the journey back home and uh, they left Jesus in the city. And after a while, they started wondering where he was. They started freaking out like any concerned parent would. Where's my son? Where's, where's Jesus at? And so they go back into the city, and they find him in the temple, arguing and debating with grown men about what the Bible has to say and, uh, and what the God's word means. And they come to Jesus, and they're like, what are you doing? You know, we thought something may have happened to you. You could have gotten kidnapped. You could have taken something. You could have been hurt. We didn't know what was going on. And Jesus makes this statement. He says, didn't you know... I would be about my father's business. Didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? Basically, what Jesus was telling his parents, even as a 12-year-old boy, that God's will, my heavenly father's will, my true father supersedes anything that I experience or face in this life. It supersedes all purpose. His will is everything. In other words, mom and dad, what you want for me and from me doesn't matter 
if it's in conflict with what God wants for me and from me. Because God is everything. And what Jesus is revealing to us here in Matthew 12 is that a relationship with Jesus Christ, and really a relationship with God, is not predicated on flesh and blood. And this was the whole problem for the nation of Israel. We see this time and time again through Scripture, this narrative. They had become so attached to their birthright. They, they had become apathetic to true holiness and apathetic to the reason why God gave them the law to begin with. God chose Israel to be the light bearers to all the world. And he gave them the, the law to prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah. And they became apathetic to that very reason. The reason why the law and the prophets were written down. The very truths God was using to prepare them for the coming of Jesus Christ. It was to help usher in salvation to the world. And, and as they became attached to their birthright, they came to believe that just because they were of the bloodline of Abraham, that they would be okay. Because they, they shared blood with Abraham. The fact that they were Jews meant they were all good with God because they were his chosen people. And somehow they reasoned that that's all that mattered. And that's why they despised everyone else. As long as they weren't a dirty Gentile or dirty Samaritan, they weren't associated with, with people from other nations, in their mind they believed that they were all good. Even though it was God's intention to use them to bring light into the other nations, to draw people to God. Because of their attachment to their birthright, they pulled away from other nations in an effort to remain culturally pure. And they believed as, as long as they just stayed pure, they held up their, their patriarchal society, that God was going to bless them. But Jesus here in Matthew 12, he says, the blood that runs in your veins doesn't matter. Even it's the same blood of Jesus Christ. Mary and Jesus shared a bloodline, and to him, that didn't matter. Literally, he's telling us that salvation isn't inheritable. A relationship with Jesus is de not determined by who is in your family and what religion they are. It's determined by your choices. Those who do God's will are in the family of Jesus. Those who do his will are the ones he associates with. Everyone else falls into that I'm not with that guy category. And that's a powerful truth to think about. It's a powerful truth to, to meditate on because how many people do you know believe or at least act like they believe that because they belong to a certain church or a certain denomination or, or religion or because their family is Christian that they are somehow automatically Christian too or automatically saved too? Like, like, there's nothing else that they really need to do. Like, like salvation happens through osmosis or, or genetics or passed down that just make you right with God or a good person. You see, many cultures, not just in America, but many cultures around the world, believe that you are actually born into the religion of that culture. Meaning, if you're born in a Muslim nation, you're automatically Muslim. But Christianity is not like that. Salvation with God through Jesus Christ is not about a religion. It's not about a nation. It's not about a family line. It's about a relationship with God Almighty. It's personal. And God desires for every person to know him intimately and deeply, to know him as well as he knows us. And here Jesus is leading us to ask ourselves these questions like, do I really believe in Jesus Christ? 
Do I really believe? Do I confess him as Lord or am I claiming another Lord? Do I trust him? Like really, authentically, with my heart, trust Jesus Christ. And do I trust him enough to follow after him? To follow a life patterned after his? You see, Christ's family had the opportunity to be a part of his true family. But they had to make a choice between being content with knowing who he was and staying where they were or choosing to put their faith in action and trust and follow him. You see, this is all that matters. This is what determines whether you have religion or whether you have relationship. And Jesus isn't saying that in order to be saved, in order to go to heaven, that you have to somehow earn it or do good works to to get enough good points in order to, to make it, because it's only by his grace that we're saved. But what he is alluding to is that those with true faith, with true belief, will be the ones who make the choice to follow him as their Lord. And we live in a world of relativism. Relativism is uh, defined like this. It's the doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture, society, or historical context and are not absolute. I'm sure you've all heard the phrase, there's no absolute truth. This is relativism at its finest. Basically, this means that the truth constantly changes. What we know to be true, that there's no absolute truth. There is no standard for morality because as times change, so does the standards. And that's why what could be considered evil 50 years ago now in our day is readily accepted. And we've gone through some historical and unprecedented times in our history as a nation, dealing with morality, marriage, and and several other issues. And there's been this wave of belief in many people and in many churches that the understanding that since God's word is a lie, that somehow that means that the truth that it declares changes based upon what we know in our culture and in our society and what we experience. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. God's word is a lie. He speaks through it. That's why you could read one passage of Scripture and get something different from it each and every time you read it. It's a living conversation between God and His people. But that doesn't mean the meaning of the words change or the intent of the original authors in what they wrote change. What that means for us practically as we look at the the living Word of God is that many applications can be made from a single truth, but the application doesn't determine the teaching. The teaching determines the application. For example, we know in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, that God said all of us, all human beings, are made in his image. So that no matter what human being you come across, every nation, tribe, and tongue, everyone is made in his image. Therefore, everyone matters to God. Everyone is deeply loved by God. And everyone is created for a purpose. Everyone. But just because we understand through the word of God that everyone is made in his image doesn't mean that God blesses every decision we make or approves of every lifestyle we lead. It also doesn't mean that every feeling or desire we have comes from him because he created us in heart in his image or that somehow he approves of everything that we do. God made us in his image in our creation because in his image we were perfect. He is perfect. When he created us, he created us to be perfect. But according to his word, we understand that we are no longer perfect because the existence of sin now plagues each and every one of us. There are none righteous, no, not one. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that sin that we wrestle with day in and day out mars the image that God created. 
And it won't be until Jesus Christ returns to make all things new again that that image will be fully restored. But in our culture of relativism, in the name of equality, we as a nation have approved different versions of marriage. Marriage, biblically, is a sacred covenant between a man and a woman. But in our nation and many nations around the world, leaders, both secular and religious, have opened marriage up to various interpretations and invite any and all who desire to enter the covenant to do so. And even though we understand biblically that marriage is a blessed union by God, that God's involved in that process according to his word, we also understand that not all marriages are blessed because not all unions are holy. And so you see that God's word is alive. God is speaking through his word, but his nature and his character remains the same. In the book of Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 and 9, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, remember your leaders who taught you the word of God. Think of all the good that's come from their lives and follow the example of that of their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's read that again. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not relevant to truth or relevant to culture. He's the same. What he thought, what he believed, what he intended at creation carries through until the end. He's the same. Verse 9, so do not be attracted by strange new ideas. Your strength comes from God's grace, not from rules about food, which don't help those who follow them. You see, culture, and even in their context, was always trying to come up or always trying to influence what people considered to be right and wrong. Cultural morality shifts as quickly as the sand. And this is a fundamental teaching for our faith as followers of Jesus Christ. The fundamental teaching is that we hold high the very word of God, that we're not conformed to the patterns of this world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we're constantly referring back to the scripture to discover what God's will is for his people, that we hold fast to what we've been taught and stand firmly on the unyielding truth of the word of God. Because it's through his word, through the gospel, that we can be made aware of who he is, what he's done, that we can accept him as our Lord and Savior, and then honor him with our lives. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12 that it doesn't matter who you associate with. What matters are the choices that you make. And the reason is this. is because what you do is determined by what you believe. What you do in your life, the decisions you make, is determined by what you believe. If you did not believe that that chair you are sitting in was going to hold you up, you would not be sitting in that chair. What you do is determined by what you believe. We as people, we are belief-driven people. We act upon our beliefs. And if your spiritual beliefs are not deeply rooted in the Word of God, your life will reflect the consequences of relativism. You'll be swayed by what sounds good in the moment, what moves your emotions, what aligns you, you with the popular majority and what's leading the culture and society on moral, political, social, and religious issues. We've entered a political cycle now where from every direction we're going to be bombarded with ads, with appeals for different causes, many of which are aimed to get you to believe in the product that they're selling you so they can manipulate your emotions and ultimately guide your decisions that will advance their cause. Not necessarily because what they're saying is true, but because it's advantageous to their career and their agenda. 
And we have to understand that as we look at our world, we see what's happening in our world, that there has always been sin since the fall. There is nothing new under the sun. There is no new uh, type of relationship. There's no new type of, of sinful act that we see that hasn't already been done. Everything has already been in existence. There's always been perversions of every kind. But the only other time in history that, that I've been able to identify or that I can recall where sin nationally has been accepted around the world, not, not just with popular in, in culture and people, but now sin is not just accepted, but pushed. And it's the agenda of nations around the world globally. I've never been able to identify another time like this than the days of Noah. If you go back in the book of Genesis in the days of Noah, God says where every thought from everyone was wicked all of the time. There was no one, no nation was standing up against evil. They were all working together to live for themselves and to fulfill the lusts of their flesh. It mirrors the world and the, and the culture that we live in today. And Jesus said, when the days become like the days of Noah, that we are to look up because our redemption draws nigh. When we see things happening, like in the days of Noah, morality politically has been corrupted. It's now making its way in large procession through the church. And as we see the days darken around us, as we look, begin to look up to the sky and await for Christ's return, it's vital as followers of Christ that we cling to our faith, that we dive into his word and hide his truth in our hearts. And we let his word be what guides our lives. In Psalm 119, verse 105, the psalmist says this. He says, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. It's our guide. It's our light. And our enemy knows this. We wrestle with a real enemy. And he also knows that our weapon of warfare, our only means of attack against him is the sword of the Spirit. Paul tells us this is the very word of God. The words of God is the weapon we have against the enemy. It's the same sword that Jesus came to wield against the enemy when he came before his death and resurrection. Because the word of God in the hearts of men creates new life and sets people free. This is why it fears and troubles the enemy. The word of God is alive. It's powerful. The enemy fears his word. When Jesus was being tempted during the wilderness wander, his wilderness fast for 40 days before his baptism, every time Satan came against Christ, every time with a temptation, Jesus responded with Scripture, the very words of God. The Bible is not just our lifeline to encourage us when we're down. It's our line of defense, and it's our means to go from defense to offense. If you think about football, if a team only played defense, they would never get to win. You have to get to offense. And the best way to win is to get the most or highest score, right? The best defense is a great offense. And the Word of God is our means to go from a defensive position to the offensive position. Now, in this story, Matthew 12, as right after Jesus drops this truth bomb on the people, uh, he's always doing things like that. If, if you read the New Testament, you read the Gospels, you'll notice everything's going you know, just fine, that it seems like a serene setting, and all of a sudden Jesus just drops this truth bomb, and it's just like a drop the mic moment, and everyone's eyes, you can, you can just see, are like bugging out of their head, and they're like, what did he just say? Did he really just say what I think he said? What did that mean, you know? And you just kind of see this in the narrative. And right here, right after he makes this shocking statement about his real family, uh, and leaving everyone scratching their heads, he drops this truth bomb, and 
Then he does something strange. He gets up and he goes to the beach. Like, I'm out. And he just walks right on off. And I can see everyone looking around and just being weirded, weirded out by, okay, you know, what's going on here? And so and I, can, I can see kind of the mind of God at work because what better way to find out who's really going to be his followers than to drop a truth bomb, walk off, and see who follows after him to figure out what's going on, right? And so it's just, it's humorous. The Bible is full of, you know, humorous things and situations like this. But after he drops this bomb, walks off to the lake, the crowd begins to follow. And as Jesus is sitting by the lake, the crowds begin to gather. And we can see that they're troubled by what he said. And as they gather, Scripture says Jesus immediately begins to tell them another story. And he kind of unveils a deep spiritual truth, not just about the war that we're in, but also how to identify who really is in his family and who isn't. In Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, this is the story that Christ tells him. It says, Later that same day, Jesus left the house and sat beside the lake. A large crowd soon gathered around him, so he got into a boat. Then he sat there and taught as the people stood on the shore. He told many stories in the forms of parables, such as this one. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seeds. As he scattered them across the field, some seeds fell on the footpath. The birds came and ate them. Other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow. But the plant soon wilted under the hot sun. And since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Other seeds fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil. And they produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. His disciples came and asked him, why do you use parables when you could just talk to the people? And he replied, you are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but others are not. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given, and they will have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. That is why I use parables. For they look, but they really don't see. They hear, but they don't really listen or understand. And this fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah that says, When you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened, and their ears cannot hear, and they have closed their ears. So their eyes cannot see, their ears cannot hear, their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. And I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but they didn't see it. And they long to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. So he drops this truth bomb on the people. And then to ease their burden, to kind of ease the tension because the, they didn't know what he was talking about, he then gives them an even more difficult farming metaphor. You know, I mean, just track with me here. Like, what does that mean? Okay, now we're talking about farming. All right, I, I totally get you, God. You know, and I can see, you know, just the tension and frustration in the people that I'm sure were wanting to know what he was meaning. Right? But right after this story, he makes this statement. He says, if you have ears to hear, you should listen and understand. And I think that's where many of us are when it comes to approaching God's word. When we engage it by reading his word, we don't really get what God is talking about a lot. And this is why it's hard to stay passionate about reading his word, to make sure that we're in it each and every day and staying grounded in the truth. Because a lot of it just kind of goes over our head. Because we hear the words, but we don't really understand. 
We give the sideways glances after we read something that's like, well, I didn't know that was in the Bible. And, and so many times we then leave with those moments being unaffected because we're not quite sure what it means for us. And because we don't get it right away, then we just go and do something else instead of following the Lord's instruction, which is to listen, to meditate, to think about, to dwell on what was just said. Because Jesus says, listen, and then the understanding comes. In Psalm 119, it says we are to hide his word in our hearts that we should meditate on his word day and night. And once we've done that, once we've listened, once we've searched for that understanding, if we still don't understand it, we can do what his disciples just did in this passage, something that the crowds didn't do. The disciples, those who were of his true family, they asked for clarity. They asked Jesus to explain his word because they really wanted to understand. They wanted to be connected to what God was saying. And so part of the role of the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of us when we become believers in Jesus Christ is to reveal the truth of God to us, to clarify, to lead us into truth. And when we don't understand what the word of God is saying, we should ask him to reveal it to us. Holy Spirit, give me understanding. Tell me what you want me to know from what I'm reading. And if we quiet our minds enough to listen, he will reveal it to us. There have been many times where I've been uh, reading and even preparing messages, and I come across something, I'm like, I know I'm supposed to preach on this, but I have no idea what this is, means or is supposed to say. And I have to ask God, clarify, spirit, speak, lead me, tell me. And then the understanding comes. Sometimes right away, sometimes later on as I'm continuing to meditate on the passage. But that's part of this relationship with God and following Jesus. It's a pursuit of understanding. It's pursuing the understanding through spiritual conversation between you and your creator. It's not just trying to read the Bible and become perfect. It's to let the spirit guide your learning, to guide your leading, so you can know his will through his word. Learning to hear his voice so that you can receive the revelation you need to understand his word. And as Jesus was talking to his disciples, giving them the clarity. This is the revelation that he gave his disciples regarding the farming metaphor. This is the truth. Just after Jesus talked about who was in his true family, this is the truth that Christ reveals through the story. In verse 18 of chapter 13 of Matthew, says this. says, now listen to the explanation of the parable about the farmer planting seeds. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those that hear the message about the kingdom and don't understand it. Then the evil one comes and snatches away the seed that was planted in their hearts. You see, we live in this world constantly fighting against our enemy. And our enemy does not want God's kingdom advancing. He has laid claim to this earth and he's fighting tooth and nail to keep possession of it. In God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven advances with every person that begins a relationship with Jesus Christ. So in order for Satan to win, he has to block the effectiveness of God's word in the world. So he works at hardening the hearts of people so they're unwilling to listen. And in order to prevent any root of truth from forming in their hearts, he works at hardening their heart. Scripture says he does this by blinding the minds of those that don't believe. He attacks their mind because their mind is the doorway to their heart. This way, not only those far from God have no defense against the kingdom of the enemy, but they can also, they cannot go on offense either, taking ground back from the enemy. This is similar to why we have the Second Amendment in our Constitution. When an opposing force or an opposing nation 
controls what arms you are allowed to have and not have. The only way for them to ensure you have no defense is to make sure you have no ability to have an offense. Because again, a good offense is the best defense. So in America, our Constitution gives us the right to bear arms. That's not just to protect our homes from invasion, but it's also to protect our nation against an oppressive and tyrannical government. We have defenses so that if need be, we can launch an offensive against an oppressive regime that's trying to take our rights away. If our government removes our ability to make war against itself, then they will also be able to remove our ability to defend against it. And this is the enemy's tactic in our world with those who are far from God. It's the motive of our spiritual enemy who blinds the minds of those who don't believe. So the word of God, the truth of God's word, can't deliver them from spiritual slavery and empower them to join in the fight against his kingdom. So he steals the word from their hearts to keep them in bondage to his own kingdom. Verse 20, chapter 13, Jesus says, The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. This represents those who have an emotional experience with God. They, they come to church and, man, they love the music, they love the word, they feel encouraged and things are going well. They're the ones that come down and use all the tissues at the altar call, and then you don't see them for six months, right? They call themselves Christians, but they really, truly don't believe the gospel and the truth that's found in his word. They think they do, but they really don't. They are easily led away from the faith when they encounter difficulty and negative situations. It's easy for them to go from hot to cold. They go from being on fire for God one minute to not believing at all the next minute because of the trials in their life, which reveals to us as his followers that they were never really who they thought they were to begin with. Verse 22, Jesus says, The seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth, so no fruit is produced. These are those who have religion, but no relationship. They are loosely associated with God, but they might be in the crowd, but they're not actually following Jesus. They're waiting around to maybe one day have a conversation with him. Anything that requires self-sacrifice and faith are not existent in their life. These are the back road, don't bother me church attenders. Their problems are bigger than their God, and so they like the idea of faith, but their lack of faith produces a religion that's masquerading as a relationship. And probably you wouldn't even know that they were Christians based on how they lived unless you spotted them in a church service somewhere. This is the kind of person, the pastor of Life Church named Craig Rochelle, he calls a practical atheist. He wrote a book called Practical Atheism. Nothing in their life reflects the fruit of the Spirit or a spirit-indwelled life, or the evidence of a true follower of Jesus. In James, in James chapter 1, verse 22, James says this. He says, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're fooling yourselves. And sadly, there are many foolish observers of Christianity that are found in congregations all over the world week after week. Verse thir or chapter 13, verse 23, it says, The seed that fell on the good soil represents those who truly hear and understand God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as has been planted. These are the true believers of Jesus Christ. These are the ones Jesus associates with. 
These are those that not only hear his word, but embrace his word and do his will according to his word. This is the true family of God. And our core concept for our message today is simply this. It's that you cannot do God's will if you do not know his will. And you cannot know his will if you don't know his word. If you don't know what the word of God says, you cannot know his will to be in his family. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul tells Timothy that he should work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and correctly explains the word of truth. God's will and his word are inextricably connected. You cannot separate the true. As believers and followers of Jesus Christ, if we not only want to be defending against Satan's attacks, but bringing the battle to his door, as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, if we want to live lives that honor and please the Lord, as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, if we want to hear those beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant, when we finally see him face to face, if we want Jesus to say that that one is with me instead of I'm not with that guy, then as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we need to know his word, believe his word, respond to his word by doing his will. Which means for many, just like his disciples, we need to give up earthly pursuits and priorities for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's why as Christians, we sacrifice financially. That's why we sacrifice relationally. That's why we sacrifice our time. That's why we sacrifice popularity. That's why we sacrifice making our main focus in our lives being the pursuit and goals and desires of this world. Because this world is not our family, and this world is not our home. Our family is a heavenly family, and our home is a heavenly home. I'm going to close today with this last passage of Scripture, Matthew 13. We're going to end with one final farming metaphor. As Jesus describes this parable, he said in verse 24, he says, Here's another story Jesus told. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night, as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat and then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted the good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked? No, he replied. You'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles, and burn them, and to put the wheat in the barn. Skip down to verse 36. It says, Then leaving the crowds aside, Jesus went into his house. His disciples said again, Please explain to us the story of the weeds in the field. And Jesus replied, The Son of Man is the farmer who plants the good seed. The field is the world, and the good seed represents people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. The enemy who planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. The harvesters are the angels. Just as weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will remove from his kingdom everyone that causes sin and all who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the Father's kingdom, and anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. See, if you are not doing the Father's will, Scripture says you're doing the devil's will. And there will come a day 
One, we're seeing signs for even now in our world where God will command his angels to reap the harvest. And if you want to be one of the ones of the righteous, one of the righteous ones who go on to experience the unfailing, never-ending love of God forever and forever and forever, one we get a glimpse of even now as being followers of Jesus Christ, then you have to make the choice to do His will. But you cannot do His will if you don't know His will. And you can't know His will unless you know His Word. And you can't understand His Word, the Bible tells us, unless the Holy Spirit is living in your heart revealing the truth to you and opening your eyes. And we know the Spirit of God doesn't come to live inside of you until you make the choice to go all in with Jesus Christ, to begin a relationship with Him, to believe in your heart that He is who He said He was and proved it when God raised Him from the dead, that you choose to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and Savior, that you choose to begin to follow him today, to live a life of heavenly purpose away from sin and for his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for scripture. God, we thank you for the stories of Christ and the truth that he's revealed to us. Because without your word, we wouldn't know your will. Without your word, we wouldn't know what Jesus did for us on the cross. Without your word, we wouldn't know the purpose that you have for our lives. So thank you, Father, for having grace and mercy enough to speak, to invite us into this relationship with you. And God, now in this moment, I just pray for all those under the sound of my voice, whether here or listening three weeks from now online, God, if there's anyone here who has yet to say, I'm going all in with Jesus. They've yet to make the choice to declare Jesus as their Lord and Savior. God, I pray right now that the Spirit of God would move in their hearts and that today would be a day of new life and a new beginning. Today would be the day that they go from being in family with the world to being in the family of God. God, I just pray that in this moment and in this room, God, you would silence the voice of the enemy. You would remove his distractions, God, that he would not be hardening the hearts of people, God, but the Spirit would be softening our hearts so that we can hear and understand and respond. God, we just give you this time in Jesus' name. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around, I just uh, invite you here today. If there's never been a time in your life, as you're looking on your life and the decisions you've made, if there's never been a time in your life where you said, God, I'm going all in with Jesus. I'm declaring him as Lord. Forgive me of my sin and come live in me so that I can honor you. Save my soul. And in the quietness of this moment, I'm going to invite you to pray that prayer today, to make that choice, to choose to live for the will of God. And you can do that right now by praying a simple prayer with me. Scripture says if you confess him with your mouth, and so I'm going to invite you to pray this aloud with me. And I'm going to invite you to make the decision that is going to change not only your life, but your eternal destiny. So that you, when the day comes, can be among the righteous who live in the presence and the love of God forever and forever and forever. If you need to trust in Christ today, pray this with me. Say, Father in heaven, forgive me of my sin and all that I've done wrong. 
Jesus is my Lord today. I believe in his death. And I believe you raised him from the dead. And I commit to living for him from this day forward. Send me the Holy Spirit so I can know to do your will. Take me, Lord. I'm yours. In Jesus' name. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around. If you prayed that prayer, I just want to pray for you today. That God would continue to work in your life and, and that we can uh, encourage you on your spiritual journey. If you prayed that prayer, would you just slip your hand up and say, Joey, that's me. Thank you. Thank you. Put your hands down. Father, you saw the hands that were raised. God, I just pray that your spirit would just surround them now. God, that you would fill them from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet with your presence. That they would sense your love and your grace right now as you are changing them from one who was once dead to now someone who is made alive. God, I pray that you would keep them connected here at Vertical Life Church and use us to encourage them on their spiritual journey as we all seek to honor you with our lives. We know that there's no perfect person, but we know that through you and through living for you and studying your word, we can live a life worthy of your calling. We can live a life that is holy and blessed because Jesus is our Lord and Savior. God, now as we sing, I pray that this anthem would just rise up in our hearts and yet you would fill us with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand one more time.